Hey, everybody. How you doing? Welcome to episode number 45 of the John Riley Project. It's April 15th, 2009. 2009. It's 2019. And I'm uh, broadcasting live from sunny Poway, California, the city and the country. And it's a spectacular day. I hope you're having a great time, a great day, enjoying the springtime. Um, But it is April 15th. And we all know April 15th, Well, there's one thing I think all of us know about the date, but really there's two big things that happen on April 15th. One is good and one is not good. Um, The good thing that happens on April 15th is that today is Jackie Robinson Day. So this is the day where the entire – all of Major League Baseball, all 30 teams uh, pay homage to one of the all-time greats. So you'll see all the players in baseball tonight will be wearing number 42 on their back um, in, uh, in memory, um, in tribute to Jackie Robinson. Of course, um, you know, he broke the color barrier in the late 40s, played for the Dodgers. He's a UCLA guy, great athlete, man of extraordinary character, um, really just a, a really important person in the history of the United States of America. So today, Major League Baseball celebrates Jackie Robinson Day uh, on April 15th. But of course, the the downside is that today is the day that our taxes are due. Many people call it tax day. I call this taxation is theft day. And uh, we're going to talk a lot about taxation in this episode number 45 of the John Riley Project. Um, before we get into that, I just, uh, first of all, I want to say, hey, listen, if you're a first-time viewer, first-time listener, thank you. Thanks for joining me. If you uh, have been watching or listening, you know, since we got started, you know, we're on episode 45 now. If you've been with us since the beginning, hey, really appreciate your support. Um, so, uh, you know, please refer this uh, podcast to a friend. If you're watching on YouTube, click on that subscribe button. We'd really appreciate the support. Um, but um, anyways, I've been really busy lately. Uh, on Saturday, I went to the Long Beach Grand Prix with one of my frequent guests here on the podcast, Pete Neald. Um, and we drove up there in his Corvette Calypso, and it was a great event. I'm going to probably do a separate podcast here shortly about the Grand Prix, uh, but loved it. And thanks, Pete, for inviting me. And that's one of the joys of having a podcast. I'll tell you what, I meet new people, make new friends, have new experiences. And um, yeah, Saturday going to the Grand Prix. I never would have done that if I hadn't started this podcast. So, um, wow, isn't it's kind of cool how things you get involved in in life and the people you meet and the experiences you have. So that was terrific. Um, and um, you know, been doing a lot of. Um, interview podcast with some really great guests. Uh, if you haven't seen the episode with Michael Golden um, and his uh, journey through homelessness and eventually well, he was another UCLA alum, just like Jackie Robinson, Michael Golden was homeless went to UCLA on a full-ride scholarship. Now he's an author, a successful entrepreneur, uh, doing great things in his community. We had a great sit-down conversation with him a few weeks ago. And then last week, we had two interviews, one with um, uh, Bob Pasella, the owner of Sabuco Sushi, which is down in the Adams Avenue, Normal Heights, North Park area of San Diego, 
talked about his um, entrepreneurship, how he got involved, how a, a Polish guy in Western Pennsylvania raised on meat and potatoes, how a guy like that would start a sushi restaurant. Uh, we learned about his creativity and innovation as an entrepreneur, a lot of the challenges he'd faced in starting his business and running his business. So if you're in, in interested in you know small business, entrepreneurship, um, it's a great podcast. I invite you to check that one out. And then we also had a great um, discussion last week with Mike Ryan. Uh, Mike, uh, another Poway guy, someone I've known for quite a long time. Our children have uh, hung out together. In fact, our wives are very good friends. And Mike is a author, and he spoke about his um, uh, challenge in life when he had a, a terrible football injury, and it was a brain injury. And he was on the, the edge of, of losing his life and talked about all the obstacles he had to overcome to come back from uh, a football head injury that he suffered in high school. And, and we retraced, the, um, you went down memory lane talking about his days in high school and all the success he had and his meeting his wife and all these wonderful stories. So I invite you to check that out as well. But we've been really busy. And so I've had a whole bunch of podcast um, topics I wanted to get into in my solo podcasts. And I knew today was April 15th and we had to talk about taxes because uh, this is a day that for some of you out there, maybe you're scrambling to get to the post office. So your package is, is um, you know, uh, postmarked on April 15th. Um, hopefully you've uh, got your taxes done and, and you can relax. But, you know, this is a stressful time for a lot of people. Um, you know, a lot of people have to write checks um, this time of the year. Um, you know, if they don't have enough withholdings or if they're a business owner like myself, I had to write a check, a, a big check. And um, it's it's a difficult thing, you know, when you, you have the stress of managing, you know, your finances and, and managing taxes. It's very hard. And so I really want to kind of get into... I raised the question, taxation is theft. And you'll hear some people talk about that. And it's it's a provocative phrase. Um, it obviously fires up certain people and it gets other people, it puts their hair on fire when you say taxation is theft. Um, because some people legitimately believe that taxation is the price we pay for civilization, the price we pay for society. Um, but I, I challenge that notion because we've gone way beyond that, way, way beyond that in terms of how taxation is being used and what it's funding in this nation. I mean, I, I started this podcast really kind of celebrating the ideals of our inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And, you know, we talk about living your life, having a flourishing life, living a life according to your own values. And in order to live the life you wish, you need a system of liberty that gives you the freedom to live your life as you choose. And if you're able to live the way you want to live, you're going to pursue your own values. You're going to pursue your own happiness. So what's the economic societal system that, that will allow you to do that will be the one with the least amount of coercion. Taxation is coercion. Taxation, if you don't pay, people show up at your door. And if you don't comply, you're going to find yourself in court. You're going to find yourself fined more. And if you continue to refuse, you're going to find yourself in jail. And there have been a lot of cases of people that have been in, in those situations. Um, taxation is coercion. Taxation is an affront, in my opinion, to our inalienable right of liberty. Um, so 
But taxation is a fact of life. Let's live in reality here for a moment. I mean, I, I, I'll speak a little bit about the way things ought to be, but the way things are, taxation exists. And so that's why I think it's so important to always make the moral case of why taxation is a big problem, why it is immoral in many cases. You know, I, I've spoken um, on another podcast about um, con- the newly um, anointed Congresswoman um, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I've spoken about Bernie Sanders. They do a very, very good job of making a moral case for their arguments. Um, now, granted, they're making a moral case for increasing tax rates. Um, and I think that is really the right way to engage in a battle of ideas, um, is to make sound um, positions, make a sound case, make a case of what you believe is righteousness for the cause that you you support. And they argue on a moral basis. I like to argue on a moral basis as well. This is why that I think taxation is immoral. I mean, because if you don't, like I said, if you don't comply, you're going to feel the heat. Um, Like, really, if you could almost take the government and, you know, swap it out with a gang. I mean, imagine if you didn't um, uh, comply with a local gang um, and they would use coercion to make your life very uncomfortable. They would use conversion to make you pay more. And if you still didn't comply, you would be subjected to violence. Um, The government does precisely that. Um, It just happens to be in a societal structure that some people think is goodness. Um, But I I disagree with that notion. Um, But many just can't fathom the idea of a society without this type of coercion. And keep in mind that the federal income tax has existed for less than half of America's history. So, um, and state taxes have existed far less than that. So there is um, we, there is a way to reconstruct society without such burdensome tax rates. I mean, gee whiz, not just federal, but even at the state level, California is an extraordinarily expensive state to live in when you add uh, federal taxes, state taxes, property taxes, excise taxes, sales taxes, and then we can go on and on. Um, but if we live in, in what we consider to be a free and open society, a society that is the land of the free, the home of the brave, then we really should be thinking about how can we live in a society that minimizes taxation, that maximizes liberty, that maximizes freedom. But we have swung so far in the other direction. It's unbelievable. You know, you hear people that will justify taxation and will say, well, you know, I like that government program and I'm happy to pay taxes for it. But you know what? Not everyone likes it. Not everyone likes that particular government program that you happen to really enjoy. But all of us are forced to pay for it. That's the problem. It's because taxation is coercive. Now, in a free and open society, if there is a company that provides products or services that we like, we can engage with them individually. We can trade cash for product, cash for services. And if you like that company, you can deal with them. If your next door neighbor doesn't want to engage in those services or those products, they can choose not to. But with taxation, we all have to comply. We all have to pay regardless if that's something we want or not want. So th- this is why I think the coercive nature of taxation makes it so immoral. Um, other people will say, well, you know, the government is us. We're the government, but we're not the government. The government is them. Um, we are not the government. And people will say, 
oh, well, there's a there's a um, uh, a social contract, you know, and, and and that to me is 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 fiction. It's a myth. A social contract doesn't exist. It's just this concept, this idea um, that is used to rationalize and justify a coercive government authoritative model backed by taxation because the contract doesn't exist. You didn't sign it. I didn't sign it. It doesn't exist. Neither one of us have explicitly agreed to it. Um, We haven't... um, uh, we haven't consented explicitly to it. And then finally, if it is a so-called contract, if one side violates, like if we violate the law, then we are held accountable. We are um, held accountable in, in, in court, potentially go to prison if we don't comply with the law. But the government, on the other hand, they violate the law themselves all the time. They set up special rules that don't apply to them. They can change the law as they choose. So when they violate the so-called social contract, they're not held accountable to it. Um, and yet we are. So it's, it's again, it's, it's a perversion. It's not a real thing, a social contract. And, but it is used by many to justify the existence of this whole taxation model and, and a powerful central government. Um, you know, Many, it's funny though, you're starting to see a lot more conversation around taxation because of Trump's um, tax um, uh, reform that, it, that came, like he enacted that, what was it? Well, this is the first year when we filed taxes. 2018 was the first year where the new tax code was in place. So this has been a hot topic as people have been filing their tax returns. Um, and it's also a hot topic in the 2020 race. You see a lot of the Democratic candidates calling for higher taxation. Um, but what we're also seeing is many using the tax code as a weapon, um, using it as a way to um, enact vengeance against certain, you know, the rich people, the corporate powers, and using that tax code to essentially zing them. Um, and to me, that's very troubling because we should be looking at a system that treats us all equally under the law, not having distorted laws that are used to go after certain people um, at the expense of others. And so I'm really disturbed by that when I see people using the tax code as a weapon, but it's, it's, it's occurring in the presidential race and we're going to see a lot more of it, especially as we get into the debates uh, for the democratic party, which I think are going to start in June of this year. Um, there's another angle to this. And, you know, people, again, the attacks on the rich, the attacks on the corporations, people are attacking them. Well, they're greedy. Those greedy people, you know, they, they need to they need to be taxed at a higher rate. Um, there's a there's a, an economist and really a philosopher that I really like. And his name is Thomas Sowell. Um, and um, he, he's a he's a uh, at the Hoover Institute at Stanford. He's taught at the University of Chicago. He's a very famous guy. And he made a great quote when it comes to greed and, and this indirectly about taxation. He says, um, I have never understood why it is greed to want to keep the money you have earned, but not greed to want to take somebody else's money. And that just always really was on target for me when I heard that message because the people that are demanding higher tax rates are the people that want more government services to serve them, but they want other people to fund it. So 
and yet they call the people that have worked for their money and earned their money, they're calling them greedy simply for wanting to enjoy the fruits of their own labor and of their own decision making. So again, we're seeing so many perversions around um, taxation, how people view taxation. Um, but I think there is a moral case to be made that this coercion from government in, in a so-called free and open society is just fundamentally wrong um, and it needs to be pushed back on. So today, um, you know, it's April 15th. Tomorrow is April 16th. And what's interesting is that's Tax Freedom Day. And um, a number of tax institutes that do this analysis and they say, you know, how much have we paid in federal income tax, the average person, in federal income tax, in state income tax, in property taxes, sales taxes, excise taxes? You know, what percent of your income does that take up? And at one point, if you were to say, I got to pay the government first, and then after that, my money is my own to keep, you know, that they call that Tax Freedom Day. And that's actually tomorrow, 105 days into the year. And so here's some interesting stats. In 2019, Americans will pay $3.4 trillion in federal taxes and $1.8 trillion in state and local taxes for a total bill of over $5.2 trillion or 29% of the nation's income. That's just incredible. That means that almost a third of the money that you earn is taken by the government. And sometimes you'll say, like, for what? And am I getting a good return on investment? I I think we can challenge that. Um, Americans who collectively – Americans will collectively – this is incredible. Americans will collectively spend more on taxes in 2019 than they will on food clothing and housing combined. I mean, those are the most fundamental things that we need to live, food, clothing, and housing. And yet the government charges us more than those three things combined. Unbelievable. Um, and if you include all the borrowing that's done, because, you know, if, if, if Americans are paying $3.4 trillion in federal taxes, you know, the federal government spends like roughly a trillion dollars more than that every year. So if you include the annual federal borrowing, which represents future taxes owed, Tax Freedom Day doesn't really occur tomorrow, April 16th. It occurs 22 days later on May 8th. So I'll include a link to um, – it's from the taxfoundation.org. I'll include a link to Tax um, Freedom Day in my show notes to, for you, so you can take a look at it. But it just – I mean if you think about – like the federal income tax was implemented in 1913. So yeah, that was what, 106 years ago. So that's less than half of the of – the, um, of the, less than half of the age of the United States. So 106 years ago, the federal income tax was instituted and it had a, the lowest rate was 1% and the highest rate was only 7%. And look what it is now. I think the highest rate um, is r- roughly around 35%. Um, and back when it was implemented in 1913, very few people actually paid the federal income tax. Um, but now it, it, it's spread to a lot more people that are impacted by it. Um, so, you know, a lot of times people will say, well, taxes are really low. Well, I, I would say, no, they're not. Because for over half of the American history, there was no federal income tax. And when it was first started, the federal tax rate for most people was only 1%. So the tax rates that we have today are very high. Now, granted, they were higher um, recently, but they are still very high. Um, here's another interesting angle. I thought this is I, this is a piece of math that I question and I I ran the numbers and this is accurate. So let me read this to you. This is a good one. Income taxes are a tax 
against becoming rich. So, so if you take a $1 bill and double it each year, after 20 years, it will compound to a total of $1 million. That's incredible, really. You have $1, double it every year, and in 20 years, it's a million bucks. But if you take that same $1 bill, double it each year, and then subtract 35% in taxes, after 20 years, it will have generated only about $24,000. So that 35% tax rate in this example um, would erode what could have been a million down to $24,000. So the point being is that you know, we talk about you know, the, the power of compound interest when you're investing money can really give you great leverage in increasing your portfolio. But the, the erosion of taxes can just dramatically impact that compound interest. Um, so, yeah, I just I couldn't believe it. So I actually ran a spreadsheet and confirmed this. So, again, if you have a dollar, you double it and then subtract 35 percent in taxes and then continue and repeat that for 20 years, you're left with $24,000. But if you didn't tax it at all, it'd be worth a million. So crazy. Um, So I think there's definitely a moral case to be made here. Because in the beginning, when the federal government instituted a federal income tax, you know, that was right around the time we were going into World War I, and some people thought it was justified. But look at how much the government has encroached into our personal lives, into business, and how the system is being used as manipulated by the powerful to rig systems to their benefit at the expense of others. And that's where it really just gets so distorted. Um, and that's where the immorality of the coercion becomes even more amplified. So let's take a look at um, federal revenues. So um, for the year 2020, and that's you know, the next fiscal year, they're forecasting it'll be $3.6 trillion in federal income tax revenue for the fiscal year 2020. But just 10 years ago, it was only $2.1 trillion. So we've, in the last 10 years, it's almost doubled the amount of revenue going to the federal government. Um, it's just a huge um, segment of our economy is going to the government. And you'll hear a, a lot, again, you know, talk about our friends, uh, Bernie Sanders and AOC. They, they and others will often bring up the comment, people need to pay their fair share. You always hear this fair share argument, but it's never, ever defined It's never, ever calculated. There's never, ever an algorithm to determine what a fair share is. You know why? Because people are using the tax code as a means to weaponize their political argument. They're using it as a way to divide people. Um, Because really, what is your fair share? What is your fair share? Serious question. Because if you look at we have like over $4 trillion of spending in the federal government. So is your fair share um, one out of 350 million? Is that it? Um, Or should you pay a greater share because you use more government services? Or should you pay a greater share because you have, you make more money? Or should you pay a greater percentage because you have um, more wealth or less wealth? I mean, what exactly is the fair share and what's fair? It's completely undefined. Um, And so, but you're seeing people make all these arguments that other people need to pay more um, because the system isn't fair. And you're right. The system isn't fair because we're having money taken from us against our will to pay for stuff that we don't want. 
or many of us don't want. And so I think the whole fair share argument really needs to be challenged because there's no algorithm, there's no equation, there's no there's no calculation of what the fair share is. Um, and, and that has to be the pushback. Um, there's, there's also, um, I mean, again, with fair share, I just want to go on to this. If, if you are like, let me pick an example. Um, let's say, um, okay, the Department of Commerce, okay, which is one of the major agencies in the federal government. I think whoever the, um, the chair is of the Department of Commerce, I think they have a seat in the president's cabinet. That entity is almost entirely corporate welfare. The Department of Commerce largely subsidizes corporations to make them more competitive overseas. Um, so for a single mom that is struggling to raise her children in Wichita, Kansas, what is her fair share of the, of the nearly $100 million, excuse me, the nearly the $100 billion that's being spent on the Department of Commerce? What is it? What's her fair share? What's your fair share of the Department of Commerce? What's my fair share? Is it even fair that we have to be paying money coercively to go into the pockets of other corporations so they can make so they can be more competitive overseas? How is that fair? And what is your share? So the whole concept of fair share is just it, it, it's like shadow boxing. It's it's not real. It's not it's not. It's not um, objective. Um, so I, it just – I always get rubbed the wrong way when I hear people use that argument. Um, and then there's the other one. The other term that people get all whipped up into a frenzy is this notion of trickle-down. And people say trickle-down doesn't work. And you, you hear that argument in terms of, well, does it help the middle class? And then people will say, well, we've had stagnant wages for the last you know two or three decades, um, and, and therefore trickle-down doesn't work. But – Trickle down works. I mean, it's, and it's not a trickle. It's a flood. Okay. Because when rich people get a tax cut, what do they do with the money? This is a serious question. Where does that money go? That cash. Okay. Now, if they, if they, it, 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 the money circulates, that's what it does. Cause they're going to do one of four things with that money. They're either going to spend it or they're going to save it or they're going to invest it or they're going to donate it. So if they spend the money, then obviously that is going to pay for goods and services and that money circulates. You could argue that it trickles down. But what if the money is saved? If the money is saved, let's say in a bank, then that money, like if people are buying you know, CDs or, or any kinds of investment vehicles in a bank, that, that money is saved, but then it's turned and it's used, it's circulated. It's lent out to people to buy homes, to buy cars, to do remodels on their houses, um, to um, fund um, other kinds of business loans for business expansion or equipment purchases so businesses can hire. So that money circulates. You could argue it trickles down because regular middle class homeowners are using that money to get a mortgage so they can buy a house. Um, regular middle-class people are using that to get a home equity line so they can replace their roof. And by the way, that roof, they have to hire roofers who are blue-collar folks that are going to do the work. And they're going to also have to buy the roofing material from a company that sells the building materials that are more middle-class workers. 
So that money circulates. It does trickle down. Then what if they invest the money? Well, if they invest the money in businesses, then that money is going to be used to to lease new buildings, to be invested in research and development. It's going to be used to expand companies. It's going to be used to buy more machinery that's going to be on leases. That is all being spent. That money is in turn spent, and that money trickles and circulates through society. And then, of course, if the money is donated in philanthropic causes, it's given directly to institutions or to people, and that money also circulates and it trickles down. Now, we can make an argument then is why isn't the middle class benefiting from this? And there's a lot of other reasons for that. But there is no question that if the money is – if people get tax breaks, they're going to do one of four things with it. They're going to spend it. They're going to save it. They're going to invest it or they're going to donate it. Now, some will say, well, yeah, they're going to invest it, but they're going to invest it offshore. They're going to invest it in offshore uh, um, places. And but think of this through. If it's invested offshore and they're going to you know, get a really low tax rate, what do you think happens to the money offshore? Do you think it just sits in a vault in the Cayman Islands? No. The, Cayman, the bank there has to pay an interest rate on that money, so they've got to earn revenue to pay that interest rate. How are they going to earn that revenue? They lend it out, and that money circulates. Now, granted, it's circulating offshore. We'd like to have that circulating onshore, and that's why we want to have low tax rates to encourage um, foreign investments to actually be invested here domestically in the United States. So – um, now, if, if, if a rich person got a tax cut and they went into their backyard and dug a hole and buried the cash in there and covered it up, then you can make an argument that the money circulates, that they are hoarding the money. That would be hoarding. Or if they had a – like, you know, if, if it's like a um, – one of the movies when they're in a mansion and they pull the, the, the fancy painting from the wall and behind it there was a safe and they take the bundles of cash and put it in there, that would be hoarding. That would be preventing the money from circulating. But rich people generally don't do that because they are smart with their money. They will invest their money. They will put their money to use to be more productive for themselves and for other people. And they're going to spend it. They're going to save it. They're going to invest it. And they're going to donate it. So the money circulates. Tax cuts will circulate in the economy. Tax cuts will trickle up, down, sideways. The money flows. The money circulates. And we can then have a separate conversation of how do we optimize that circulation? Um, but when people say trickle down doesn't work, I say BS. It works because that money is being used. Um, but, you know, it's interesting. You, you think about this. I'm, I own a small business. I own an S corporation. And um, I'm just an entrepreneur. I have a consulting business. I do marketing for clients. As an entrepreneur, I am particularly stung by taxes. And, and it's grand. I don't own a big corporation. I'm in a corporation. I have one employee, me. Okay. But I have to pay double on my payroll taxes. So when I pay, um, I think it's 6.2% for Social Security, I have to match myself. Now, most employees, when they get uh, tax on payroll taxes, they pay 6.2% and their employer matches that with 6.2. Well, as a self-employed, I have to pay 12.4. So I'm essentially double taxed um, as a uh, self-employed person. 
Um, and then also, as by owning an S corporation, um, in the state of California, every year I have to pay eight hundred dollars. Um, just it doesn't matter how much profit I have. I mean, when I started my business, I was not profitable because I was building it, um, and I still had to pay an eight hundred dollar tax to the state government for the privilege of having an S corporation. So you find that a lot of times the tax code, in many ways, is rigged because there are so. I mean, there's. 70,000 pages of regulatory or actually of um, of tax deductions, loopholes, um, shelters that are all used to benefit um, those with influence, which are typically the rich, typically corporations that have a lot of power. But small businesses are the ones that don't have that luxury. And so – um, this is again where I think the the where we're seeing the tax code used as a weapon, the tax code used as a means to rig the system and to give those with special interests special benefits at the expense of others. Um, and as a small business owner, we feel it. Uh, if you own a small business, maybe you feel it. Um, so it's this gets down to the immorality of the system. Now, it's interesting is when the the new. Um, uh, tax cuts were put in place, um, you know, everyone was saying, well, this is just a, a, a big tax cut for the rich, a big tax cut for corporations. And yeah, it was. Um, but keep in mind that the tax code is progressive, right? So that means that for each increment of cash that you earn, you pay a higher and higher income tax rate. So the way the system is set up is that the poor pay really nothing in federal income tax. Remember the whole Mitt Romney line back in 2012 when he said, you know, 47% don't pay federal income tax and they won't vote for me. Um, Well, you, you can make your own judgment on Romney, but that statistic was basically right. Uh, roughly about half of federal income tax filers pay no federal income tax net. You know, they'll pay some, but they'll get a rebate. They'll pay some, get a refund. Um, and uh, almost half will not pay federal income tax at all. And and then those in the middle class will pay some. And as you go up higher and higher, they're going to carry more and more of the burden. So mathematically, obviously, if you have a tax cut, those that pay the most are going to likely get the greatest benefit. And that's what we're seeing. Um, and for some reason, this gets people all in a tizzy. They're like, well, the rich get the, be- the benefit and not the middle class and the poor. Well, the rich are the ones that pay the most in federal income tax. So, of course, of course, mathematically, that's the way the system is designed. It's designed as a progressive system. So, of course, it, when there's tax cuts, the rich are going to be the ones that are going to experience the greatest benefit. Um, but one of the interesting things that happened in Trump's tax code um, that he implemented is he put a, ta- a cap on state and local tax deductions, which was particularly uh, painful in um, in California and other so-called blue states that generally would have supported Hillary Clinton. Um, and when I first heard about this, I was really concerned. I thought, oh, my God, there's a good chance that my taxes are going to go up because, you know, we pay – huge property taxes. We pay huge um, uh, state taxes. And so that deduction for state and local taxes is a pretty significant um, reduction in our um, adjustable gross income. So it has a big impact. And then when that was going to be limited, I was concerned. And I remember talking to our CPA and he said, you know, you're probably going to be net 
ahead of this. Yeah, your deductions will be limited, but the tax rates have been lowered and you probably are going to actually end up paying a net less in taxes. And I didn't believe it. Um, and, uh, but as we got, um, you know, and crunched the numbers, sure enough, it was right. I mean, we, we ended up paying a lower federal income tax as a share of our income in 2018 than we did in 2016. So as a percentage basis, it actually went down at the federal level. Our, our state income tax went up uh, compared to 2016. Um, but it was interesting when the implementation of the that SALT deduction, it was, again, more weaponization because that was something that was going to hurt states like Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, California, because they're the ones with the highest state and local taxes. And and because they capped that deduction, it was a way that the Republicans and Trump in particular was able to zing the Hillary people. Um, so, again, tax code being used as a weapon um, just is infuriating. Um, and and just for the record, I do not support Trump at all. Um, and uh, I was on record as being against the tax policy that he enacted because some people are paying more. And granted, others, a lot of people are paying less, but some people had to pay more. In my opinion, nobody should have to pay more. We should be looking to decrease taxes for everybody, um, not increasing taxes for some and decreasing taxes for other. Um, and because that's what happened in this particular case. But, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. There's a, um, uh, a lot of people that have been up in arms about their refunds. You know, people are saying, well, my refund is so much less. And in some cases, people are saying, I'm not getting a refund. I actually have to pay. I have to write a check. And uh, so some people are thinking that their taxes were increased. But what had happened is, is that for a lot of people, the they didn't adjust their withholdings on their payroll. Uh, you know, so their pay paycheck showed a net positive um, uh, increase of bottom line pay to them because of the tax cut. So they were paying less in taxes every payroll. And then at the end of the year, that had an adjustment, you know, and, and that affected how much of their refund or if they were going to have a refund at all. But there was an interesting, um, you know, survey that was done. And this is data from the Tax Policy Center. And it showed that 64.8% of Americans got a tax cut but um, found that only 39.6 thought they got a tax cut. And I think this is because people got, they saw a little bit of a bump in their paycheck um, and, you know, it wasn't a lot uh, and, and, and it didn't really impact their lives all that much. So they just, no one really thought they got a tax break, but in fact they did. And, and I was one of those. I was surprised when I ran the numbers on a percentage basis compared to 2016, um, our tax rate went down. Um, so I was thankful for that. Um, but there's, there's just other parts of taxation that I think are crazy. And again, more taxation is a weapon, but this isn't income tax. These are tariffs. And we've talked about this with um, Trump's policy on trade, which is just abysmal. You know, he's using tariffs to weaponize trade, using tariffs to so-called fight back against these trade deficits with China and other Asian countries. But, you know, when there are tariffs, do you know who that penalizes? You might say, oh, that penalizes China. No, it penalizes Americans because a tariff is a tax on the imported good. A, ta a tariff is a tax that the consumer pays. And in the past, if there was a choice between uh, assuming two products of equal quality, an American product that was expensive and an imported product that was less, now that imported product costs more. 
And so what we are seeing is, is that Americans are either going to are going to have to pay more, whether it's for that imported product or they're going to buy the American product and pay more. Um, so that's a penalty financially on Americans. And it's also cronyism. Again, the tax code uses a weapon, the tax code used to rig the system, because if you're an American company that's having trouble competing with um, products that are being imported and you can rig the system to make those competitive products more expensive so your product looks more attractive on a competitive basis, that's good for you. Um, but that ultimately, that price is paid by American workers and the people that are benefiting are those corporations that have successfully lobbied Congress and lobbied the regulatory agencies to enact all these tariffs. So again, the tax code is used to rig the system. It's been weaponized and that's what makes it immoral besides the fact that it's coercive. So um, on the state level, though, I really want to give a big shout out to Richard Ryder. I don't know if you know who he is, but he's um, the uh, he he runs an organization called um, what is it? San Diego Tax Fighters. And he's he's a hardcore fiscal conservative and he publishes a, um, a study every year and it goes through all the taxes in the state of California. And I want to read some of them to you. And I'm pulling up his blog right now on my tablet. Um, and it's called Breaking Bad, California versus the other states. And here's just I'm going to read just a couple of nuggets from this. And what this explains is the outrageously high tax rates that exist in the state of California. I mean, it's not even close that we're the highest tax state in the, in the, in the country. Prior to Prop 30 passing in November 2012, California already had the third worst state income tax in the nation. Our 9.3 tax bracket started at under $50,000 for people filing as individuals. 10.3% started at $1 million. Now our millionaire's tax is 13.3%, including capital gains. California's uh, capital gain rate is now the second highest in the world. So 10% plus on taxes starting um, at $250,000. California by far has the highest state income taxes in the nation. Now, you can make your moral judgment on, oh, the billionaires, they need to pay more. But look what was said there. For people that are that are the bracket at under $50,000, people are still paying 9.3% to the state if you are under $50,000. Now, granted, there are deductions and things, but that is a really high rate. That's almost 10% of your income that hits just, you know, the, the everyday folks, middle-class folks. That's a huge percentage, especially considering that there are a handful of states that have zero income tax and many other states have far, far lower percentages. Um, we are 34% higher than the second place Oregon and a heck of a lot higher than all the rest, including seven states with zero state income tax and two states, New Hampshire and Tennessee, that tax only dividends and interest income, but not capital gains. Um, so California has the highest state sales tax in the nation. Now, remember, a sales tax has a state level and then then the, the county and sometimes cities will add layers on top of it. But the state sales tax is the highest in the nation in California, which is 7.25%. Um, and the ninth highest state with the average local sales tax included, which is, you know, 8.54% is the average sales tax in, in communities in San Diego, in, in California. And there are some communities in California where the sales tax is over 10%. So think about that. You're paying... 
10% on sales tax. You're paying roughly 10% or more on your state income taxes, plus your federal income taxes, which are even higher. Um, The corporate income tax rate in California of 8.84% is the highest west of Iowa, except for Alaska. Overall, California has the eighth highest corporate tax rate in the nation, and a new bill in California would raise that rate to 18.84%, which would be 57% higher than the second highest state, which is Iowa. So it's already a super high corporate tax rate, and the California legislators want to increase that. Um, And we could go on and on. I mean, even the gas tax. I mean, have you seen everyone's paying like four bucks a gallon for gas now? California has the nation's second highest gas pump tax at 73.13 cents on the gallon. So that's like, you know, we're paying four bucks a gallon. So that's what roughly about um, 20% of what you're paying in gas is in gas taxes. Now, generally speaking, I've... Gas taxes are a a way to help pay for roads and infrastructure. And if it were used exclusively for that, you can make an argument that a gas tax is far more moral because it taxes people in proportion to usage. And there are flaws in the system. You know, electric vehicles don't pay that gas tax. And I drive an electric vehicle. But um, the in a perfect world, uh, uh, a usage fee for roads would be ideal. A gas tax comes as close as possible, that at least that I've seen, to doing that. But even so, when California has a high income tax rate, you have, even though the property tax rate isn't that high, but the price of, the price of homes is extraordinary. So when you look at the property tax bill, that's a huge nut as well. So you have federal tax, state tax, sales tax, corporate tax, gas tax. When you add it all up, it's huge incredibly expensive to live in the state of California. I can go on and on, but um, Richard Ryder does a really, really good job of this, and he ha- and he publishes it, and it's called Breaking Bad, California versus the Other States, and um, he just revised this in the second half of last year, so I invite you to go check that out, because uh, he does a really good job of, of documenting how California compares to all the other states, but the bottom line is it's expensive as hell to live here, and I think we all know that. Um, Okay, before I get in a couple more comments on on taxes, um, I do want to say, hey, please join me on social media. Um, um, You can follow me on Facebook. I have my personal page, John Riley, but I would encourage you to, to, I have two other Facebook pages. My personal Facebook page is where I'm usually engaging with my friends and family, but I have one called the John Riley Project, which is where I always post episodes, uh, the YouTube of that, and sometimes my um, iTunes links will be in my John Riley Project Facebook group. I also have a separate John Riley Project group called the um, John Riley Project Insiders Group. That's when I do a lot of my mobile podcasts. I haven't done one in a few weeks. I need to get another one out there. But I'll do, there's bonus content essentially there. And um, I would enjoy for you to reach out and join. You have to answer a couple of questions and and you'll be allowed in. And it's kind of an exclusive group. So look for the John Riley Project Insiders Group on Facebook. You can also follow me on Twitter at John Riley Poway. Um, I'm on Instagram, also at John Riley Poway. Um, I try to post some inspirational things from, um, you know, quotes and um, of some heroes and economists and philosophers that I like and things that hopefully will inspire you. So I try to get some of that out on my social media. And I love the discussion. I love the conversation. So please join me out there on social media. And if you happen to know a guest that you think would be great on this uh, podcast, I welcome um, 
you to reach out. Maybe you can um, suggest a guest or maybe you would like to be a guest yourself. And if you are, I'd love to have you. So um, reach out to me there or on my webpage at johnreillyproject.com. Um, let's talk about some of the crazy things. And this is, and again, taxation, I believe, is immoral um, because it's coercive, because it is used as a weapon, because it is used to rig systems to benefit some groups at the expense of others, uh, because it's a it's coercive and it's a fundamental attack on liberty. Um, so. But then when you go a step further and say, okay, now that the government has the money, how are they spending it? And we can get into how it you – know, I already talked about the Department of Commerce and how it's being used for corporate welfare. And Medicare Part D is just a huge boondoggle of corporate welfare for big pharma. But then there's all these crazy – you know, foolish wars. I mean, how long have we been fighting in Afghanistan? And not only are we fighting and, and paying for military, and they're, we're not only losing money, but we're losing valuable lives, but we're paying to rebuild the infrastructure in Afghanistan. And the same thing in Iraq. And we have military excursions in Somalia and Yemen and Syria, and we can go on and on. So just the corporate welfare and the military boondoggling is outrageous. But there's also just a lot of just in another more insanity. So here's a couple of crazy ones. Um, Dr. Rand Paul and Rand Paul is a guy. He's a senator from Kentucky. I used to be a big supporter of Rand Paul. But then when Trump was elected, he went sideways on me. But he still has a lot of good things. And there's now I kind of pick and choose with what Rand Paul has to say. But every year he comes out with these waste reports and he's got a new one for the spring of 2019. He calls it waste in full bloom edition of the waste report. He documents cases of just utter fiscal malfeasance by federal government and how they're taking your tax dollars and completely blowing it on insane policies. So here's a couple of them. I'll read them off to you. Um, the federal government bought an elementary school gym school board at nearly 500% markup, costing $13,000, sent international students to college for free, um, studied the habits of online dating app users. That cost $1.2 million to do a study on how people use online dating apps, taught the language um, taught Lao, the, the language of Laotians, to Laotians. That cost the United States government to, or taxpayers $20 million. Improved the quality of TV in the country of Moldova, $2 million. Um, paid to teach social scientists how to apply for grants, $103,000. Allowed the 1033 program to be abused. That's the program where the Department of Defense provides military weapons to the police to essentially militarize local police. $2.7 million. Tested whether social justice improves with more STEM education. You know, um, I think that's science, technology, um, what is STEM? Engineering and math. And that was $650,000. Funding a week of summer school for grad students, $50,000. Developing six undergrad courses on food marketing for $128,000. So just over and over all of this insane waste. And right here, you know, Senator Paul um, captured over $42 million in his waste report, and he does this all the time. And this is just one snapshot. And he'll provide all these just 
almost they're almost comical the examples of where the federal government is just wasting money that they get now granted this is an infinitesimal tiny speck of the federal budget but it does highlight how the money is being wasted but there's even some and that's a I'll, I'll include this link on the on the um, on the notes but there's another one and this was um, uh, this this was actually put out by reason.com that's a uh, a free market publication, and they were um, documenting six infuriating ways the government spends your money. It was uh, you know something for to celebrate tax day. Three hundred thousand dollars were spent on three hundred and ninety one coffee mugs, and these were these specialty coffee mugs that were used in airplanes uh, to keep the coffee warm. So that was like almost $1,000 per coffee mug that was being spent. Um, $400,000 to promote asset forfeiture in Paraguay. Now, asset forfeiture in and of itself is another terribly immoral policy where the, where the police are seizing people's assets, their homes, their cars, their cash, before they even had a, their time in court. They're essentially guilty until proven innocent. Um, that policy in and of itself is immoral. But then the government is spending $400,000 of our money to teach or promote it in, the, in a foreign nation in Paraguay. $13.6 million was spent to hire two border agents. Two. And you're thinking, how in the heck could they spend $13.6 million? And what they did is they went with a consulting company, paid them $13.6 million to go and have this large um, human resources effort to hire more uh, border agents, which is what you'd expect, you know, with Trump and his policies with um, immigration. Um, but uh, they ended up, something happened and they ended up not deciding not to hire all those agents, but that consulting company still got the 13.6 million, even though they only hired two people. Um, so again, there's cronyism. We, you know, this is again, the system is used to, it's rigged and it benefits corporate powers with these crony policies. Um, and that's a great example. Now here's another good one. $325,000 was spent on Mike Pence's national anthem stunt. Now you remember this was during the whole, um, you know, Colin Kaepernick and guys in the NFL were kneeling during the national anthem, and and uh, Vice President Pence flew on. Is it Air Force Two? Is that his plane? He flew to Indianapolis, attended a Colts game. And um, was in, I guess, the luxury skybox, I'm guessing, with the owner. And then once the national anthem was being played, and then sure enough, some of the NFL players were taking a knee, he walked out. And it was a pre-planned stunt that cost taxpayers $325,000. There was another one. This is a good one. (laughs) There was $333,000 was put to a study on bars, on like nightclubs um, around the U.S.-Mexico border because they wanted to see if um, the policies, our immigration policies were affecting how people spent their time and how young people chose to spend their time. Um, And then there was nearly $3 million that was spent to study dance clubs, like, you know, where there's electronica music and, you know, are people, you know, what are they doing? What's their behavior? And they studied that at the cost of $3 million. So that's how some of your taxpayer taxpayer dollars are being spent. Um, and 
So it's just outrageous. And then you get down to the local level. And here in Poway, oh, my God, we have the billion-dollar bond. You remember that one? That was in We were a national disgrace in the news um, about six years ago. And this is where the school district needed to borrow a little bit over $100 million um, to fund infrastructure improvements on some of the campuses in Poway Unified, you know, and – and in order to borrow that, I think it was about $120 million, if I recall, in order to borrow that amount of money, they had to, uh, because of the situation with the marketplace, they had to agree to a program that would eventually pay back the investors $1 billion. Um, so, again, just outrageous malfeasance, outrageous fiscal irresponsibility because they promised that they were going to fund these bonds without a tax increase. And the only way they could do it was to put together what are called capital appreciation bonds. And what it did is it delayed any payments on principal and interest for 20 years. So this was effectively like a lot of those crazy home mortgage loans that we saw during the um, irrational exuberance that Alan Greenspan talked about, where people were get to getting loans and paying no interest, no principal for five years, and then had a massive balloon payment. Our school district did the same darn thing, and they did it in a school bond that could not be renegotiated, which, again, tied their hands behind their back, effectively tied taxpayers' hands behind their back. And so after the tap payments won't begin until year 21 and then continue for 20 years thereafter. If you do the math, taxpayers are going to be spending a billion dollars uh, to borrow roughly only 10 percent of that amount. Um, so cronyism. Those investors are going to be making out like, you know, they're going to really do well in their investment at the expense of taxpayers. And then, oh, by the way, when we get to the year 21, when we start making those payments, the infrastructure is going to need to be upgraded or replaced anyways. And so it's going to be a double whammy for those people um, when their children are going through these schools. And that'll start in the in the, the 2030 decade. So just, again, outrageousness on the local level. And then even here at Poway Unified, our, our former superintendent, John Collins, was stealing money, embezzling money that, you know, taxpayers have paid. It's supposed to go to fund education, and he's, he's pocketing it. He stole $350,000, and he was, you know, found guilty in a court of law, and he had to repay half of it. He should have had to repay the whole darn thing. But it all goes back down to just this foolishness, this irresponsibility, the fact that money is is coercively taken, the money is used to rig systems, and then you see it just being literally pissed away in so many of these categories. It's just outrageous. So for those of you that, you know, if, if you if you know, this goes back to the notion of refunds and whether you have to pay today on April 15th. The, the federal government and the state government are very savvy and smart that they've implemented this withholding system where you have these payroll deductions every pay period because you don't feel the pain. You don't really care so much what your gross income is. You just care about that bottom line number. And so um, when – you get to April 15th, for some people, they get a refund and they, they look at it as a windfall, like, hey, it's like a forced savings account. Um, but really, those of you that are getting refunds, basically, you're you're getting less in your paycheck every week. The government is getting a tax free loan thanks to you. Um, and and um, but it may be in the end, that's OK for you. Maybe you like getting that check at the end of the year. But because we don't have to actually write a f- check for the full amount in April. 
Most people don't feel the pain of really what that tax payment is. Um, For me as a small business owner, I feel it. Um, I have to make quarterly payments. I have to literally write a check to the IRS and to the Franchise Tax Board every quarter, and it's painful. Um, And uh, and when you see how this money is being used for all of these things that you don't want, you don't care about, you think are immoral, you think are wrong, but yet you're forced to pay, it's infuriating. And sure, we, we can make a list of some things that the government does that we like. And there are definitely things the government needs to do. Um, but that's a small fraction of what the government actually does. Um, you know, government, in the incarceration state, police brutality, there's violence, there's corporate welfare, there's all the crazy wars. I mean, I can go on and on and on and on. Um, where the money is just being used so poorly. And even the money that's being used in education, we're seeing money, increased money going to education and test scores are flat. I mean, there's a wonderful graph that the Cato Institute did and documented that for the state of California. So we're not even getting the full bang for our buck um, in many cases. So it's just, it's just so challenging. Um, and then on top of it, you, you ever notice that when revenue goes up, spending goes up, and we're, we still seem to always be in a deficit at the federal government level. So you know, even with the Trump, Bush, the Trump tax cuts, and again, I didn't support these tax cuts when they, when they came out because some people had to pay more. Um, but even with the Trump tax cuts, revenue to the federal government went up overall. Um, so you think, hey, okay, maybe we can put a dent in the deficit, but no, spending goes up even more. And that's what always usually happens. And that's why we have these crazy, outrageous deficits. That's why we have $22 trillion in debt that, it, let's be real, it's not going to be paid back. And you know who's going to end up you know, holding the, the bag on that are our children and our grandchildren and their children down the road um, because the interest on that is going to become a greater and greater piece of the pie. I mean, right now, um, I'm trying to think of how much it is. It's like between 300 and $500 billion per year it just goes to interest on the debt. And the debt's going up. So that interest payment's going to keep going up. And it's going to, you know, when you add up all the entitlement programs, the interest on the debt, the military, it just, there's no way to keep it up. And so many will make the argument, we've got to increase taxes. And I'd say, wait a minute, we need to rethink this. We need to think about how can we spend the money better? Um, are all these things that the federal government is doing, do they really need to do them? Um, you know, do we need to have studies of dance clubs? Um, do we need to be teaching Laotians, how to speak Laotian, you know, um, do we need to be in these foolish wars all around the world? Um, we need to really take a hard look of what we're doing here and really what the proper role of the government is. Um, but I've talked about a lot about how, you know, the system is rigged because all of the, the tax code, I mean, the progressive tax system in general, we could argue that point as well. I mean, we all should be equal under the law, right? But the, 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 the fact that we have a progressive income tax system means that different people pay different rates. But it, it's far worse than that. It's all of the, the deductions, the loopholes, the tax shelters, the special rules for this group or for this industry. Or if you behave this way, you get a break. But if you behave that way, then you don't get a break. And it's all of this manipulation, this central planning, this um, – this, uh, you know, essentially control over the economy and over people's lives. And the tax code is used to engineer society, and in my, my opinion, in ways that further rig the system. Um, now, for a lot of people, 
you know, like, again, I, I, I've, I've spoken about this with electric vehicles. I, I, I love electric vehicles. I love the technology. Um, I love the fact that I can, you know, power my car from the solar energy off my roof. And I'm not paying four bucks a gallon for gas. I love that. But I also recognize and I understand that that I'm getting significant tax breaks to buy an electric vehicle. I'm getting tax breaks to put solar on my home. Um, In my ideal world, that wouldn't be the case. But I live in reality. I live in the world that is, not the world that I want it to be. And the world that is, is that there are rules that exist and you've got to play the game. Uh, to maximize your situation. That's what I'm doing. Um, so I play the game. That's part of the reason why I have a corporation. Um, and I've structured my career that way because there are certain advantages to me personally to do that. And so I do. Um, but uh, um, it's, it's, it's a shame, though, that, you know, in order to keep more of your own money that you've earned, you have to jump through all these hoops just to be able to get it back, um, which is what I'm doing. Uh, but really, if we live in a world that or if we if we have a federal government that was founded on the basis of securing our inalienable rights of life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness, we wouldn't have to jump through hoops just to be able to keep more of our own money. But that's what's happening. And, and that's, again, the coercive nature, because if you look at it, follow the money, you know, look at where the money is going. And then you have to do all of these contortions to be able to get your money back, because otherwise your money is going to all these other entities. Um, because of the way the system is set up. And it's set up because the lobbyists have influenced the politicians, influenced the regulators to change the law, to change the regulations to benefit them. Um, Here's another really interesting line. This goes back to the morality of taxation. And um, taxation is more than theft. It's intolerance for the preferences and even the moral viewpoints of our neighbors. Through taxation, we forcibly impose our will on others in an attempt to control their choices. Through taxation, pacifists are forced at gunpoint to pay for killing machines. Vegetation, vegetarians are forced at gunpoint to subsidize grazing land for cattle. Non-smokers are forced at gunpoint to support both the production of tobacco and the research to counter its impact on health. These minorities are the victims, not the initiators of aggression. Okay, now you could say forced at gunpoint, come on. Well, yeah, that is hyperbole, but think about it. What happens if you don't pay your taxes? You get fined, you get penalties. What happens if you don't pay those things? You're taken to court. Um, And what happens if you don't show up in court or you go to court and you don't pay? You go to jail. So if you are vehemently against taxation, at some point, you're going to encounter people with guns. Guaranteed. It's going to happen. And that speaks to the immorality of it and the course of nature of it. So it's, um, it's nuts. But again, let me make this one other point. And um, again, more about the reality of what it is versus the way we wish it to be. Now, the way I wish it would be is that the federal government wouldn't be so intrusive. There wouldn't be all these systems that rig the marketplace. Uh, there wouldn't be all the social engineering. That's, you know, wave a magic wand. That's the utopia. But the reality is, is that exists. And so you live in reality. So I've always often argued that 
everyone here, everyone's struggling to figure out a way to help make college more affordable. And people are saying we should make college free. And, and I've often objected to that because you end up taxing people. Um, that don't go to college. So people that do go to college get a discount. Often rich people get a discount or rich people in the future rich can get a discount, which is immoral on its face. But if you are going to have a federal government policy, excuse me, that's going to help reduce the impact of, of the cost of education, they should make it tax deductible. Okay. Because right now, if you work at a corporation and you want to get training of some sort, well, that, it's, it's a business expense. It's fully tax deductible. But as an individual, if you want to you know, invest in yourself and pay for your own training, you are limited to the amount of money that you can deduct from your taxes for college. It, it, if we're going to have a system of societal engineering, um, under that case, what I would recommend they do is make the full expense of your college education tax deductible and have it deductible over your prime time earning years. I mean, obviously not during the years you go to school because your income is virtually nothing. But if you were able to have that on a time delay of 10, 20, 30 years, you could then be deducting those taxes um, at the time when you're earning the most income. That makes a lot more sense. Um, So, but still, I, I just think the whole notion of the government shouldn't be in that business of central planning the economy because what they do is they there's all the unintended consequences when they try to make the system good for these people and ends up being bad for those people. And it's like squeezing a balloon. You um, you reduce it here, but it expands there. And and the those that are um, well connected, those that are in the pockets of the politicians and regulators. They know this, they understand it, and they influence the system to benefit themselves. So while this so-called societal engineering is put forward under do-gooder notions to benefit society, always follow the money. Always look at who is getting rewarded. And you're going to find there's a lot of money being spent on corporations. And you're going to find, like right now, it's all about, you know, Obamacare. If you look at Obamacare, that's a lot of subsidies that goes to insurance companies. Um, And, you know, if we go to Medicare for all, you're going to see a lot more money going to um, health providers. And so follow the money. (laughs) That's what I say. You can maybe make a moral case for certain things, but always follow the money. And in a lot of cases, um, you know, investors are making money on this and they're all doing it through a manipulated system that violates the freedoms and the rights of other people, Um, which, again, that's the immoral nature of it. you know, here's another angle, and I'm kind of a little bit all over the place now, but um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez spoke about um, increasing our, our uh, progressive tax rate. So the highest rates um, are people are going to be paying 60, 70 percent, you know, on the highest tiers of income. And, um, you know, she said, and she made the argument that we used to have tax rates that were over 90%. And she's right. Um, during the 50s, under President Eisenhower, the top um, the top sta- stage of our progressive tax rate, that bracket, I think was as high as 91%, if I recall. And and people are saying, well, we've done this before. But, but think, think about that. Now, I know a lot of people think, well, they're millionaires, they're billionaires, they, they don't need all that money. Well, it's their money. Okay, let's, they earned it. Whether you agree or disagree with how they got the money, it's their money. Um, but think about any system that, if we're taxed at 100 percent 
That's like slavery. I mean, that's like you're working and earning and then you keep nothing. 91% is some fraction of slavery, isn't it? And, you know, granted, you could say that's just on that one tier, but still on on a principal basis, taking 91% of anybody's dollar, of any dollar that happens to be in their pocket, that is just outright theft. And the other interesting thing angle to this is that even back in the 1950s, when the highest... um, bracket of the progressive tax code was 91%. Even back then, the effective tax rate, if you look at total re- uh, total income, um, excuse me, total taxes paid divided by income, so your effective tax rate after deductions, shelters, loopholes, yada, yada, yada. The, the effective tax rate was basically roughly about the same as it has been over the last few decades. I mean, it's, it's come down a little bit further now with the recent Trump tax cuts. But generally speaking, the effective tax rate in the 1950s for the top 1% is about the same as the effective tax rate, you know, in the in the 2000 teens. Um, so. When you hear progressives recommending those really high tax rates, you never hear them also recommending all these deductions, loopholes, et cetera. Um, But all those deductions, loopholes, shelters, et cetera, that is all of the societal engineering. That's all the rigging. That's all of favors for this group at the expense of that group. It just, and, and that's where it just gets crazy. And that's why we have lobbyists. That's why we have money in politics. So I've often said, if you want to get money out of politics, if you want to get rid of cronyism, the way you do it is to get the government out of money. Rather than getting money out of politics, get the politics out of money. So um, if the government has little to no control over the economy, then they don't have the power to rig it. And therefore, it's not in the interest of all these people to lobby to rig the system further. Um, now, I, I mean, there's still a role for government to play in those cases, you know, fraud, theft, damages. But setting up all of these procedural systems, regulations, tax codes that rig the system, that is what's, that's the reason that there's so much money in politics is because people want to have influence over that whole machine so that they can set it up where they get the benefit and they can escape having to pay the tax. Um, And it's just so perverted and distorted at this point that in my opinion, the the thing needs to be blown up. Um, So, um, you know, the, the other angle to this too is, is that if you really, the other way is if, if you say there has to be an income tax and if you say there has to be an income tax and we want to get rid of all the cronyism, all the rigging and everything else that goes along with it, then the obvious answer is to implement a flat tax because then that treat, that treats everybody equally under the law. Now, granted, it's still coercive, it's still immoral, but if you're going to have to have a tax on income, it should be a flat tax where we all pay the same percentage. I don't know, what is it? You hear numbers thrown around 10%, 15%, but whatever the number is, it should be as low as possible, but it should be flat where we all pay the same rate and there are no deductions, no loopholes, no shelters, no mortgage deduction, no deduction for anything everyone gets treated the same. That would be equality under the law. Um, That's what our nation was founded on, was the notion of equality under the law. Now, granted, in our course of our history, we've we've struggled to get that right. I mean, we can point to slavery and a lot of other sins, um, but still, the principle, our founders got it right. 
inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, equality under the law, separation of church and state. Those principles are right and righteous. Um, But the implementation hasn't always been perfect. We need to go and strive for that ideal. Um, One other angle on this is you're seeing cases now of corporations that pay no income tax, you know, like Amazon. Oh my God, Amazon had so much profit and they paid nothing in federal income tax. And people are upset at Amazon. Okay, well, first of all, Amazon is following the law. Secondly, that's Amazon's money that they earned, okay? So um, rather than getting outraged that they paid nothing, we should be asking ourselves, we should, why is everyone else paying more? Why are other people paying? That's the problem, not the fact that Amazon paid nothing. Um, but they're just following the law. And what's happening is, is for a lot of these cases, you're seeing companies that maybe had lost money in previous years. They're able to carry forward those losses and use that to offset their revenue. And that reduces their tax rate. One of the things that was put in place in this new corporate tax code is if you made an investment in, in capital equipment and in, in, in technology infrastructure within your business, rather than having to amortize that over many years, you were able to take that full deduction of that investment in year one. And so that's reducing the amount of um, profit that these companies are having to report. And in some cases, they're not reporting any profit at all because of the way the rules have been set up. Now, in many cases, this is the rigging, this is the cronyism, and that's a problem. That's what needs to be fought against. Um, But it's still, it's their money. They earned it, and they should be able to keep it and use that money to reward their people and to reward their investors and to expand their business. Um, So when I hear of companies that are not paying any income tax, I don't get angry with the company. I don't get angry... Um, with the fact that they're not paying at all. What I do get angry is that the system is rigged where they don't have to pay, but other people do have to pay. That to me is a problem. And that is because of the, the nature, the coercive nature of taxation and of the social engineering that goes along with it. So what should we do? Okay, I've been spending God knows how long here kind of ran, ranting about the immorality of taxation, the, um, the rigging of the system, the distortion, the perversion of the system, how people are rewarded at the expense of others, how it's coercive in nature, how um, it's, it's cronyism, how it's societal engineering, it's control over people's business, control over people's personal lives, and how it's literally outright theft, where you're having to pay for things that you have no interest in, where you have to pay for things that you didn't buy, you didn't want, you didn't order. Um, They're not even things that you wanted to buy for other people, but you're still forced to pay for it. So it is theft. But what can we do to change the system? Well, I think the first thing that has to be done is there needs to be a conversation about what is the proper role of government. And one again, I'm going to go back to the preamble of the Declaration of Independence, which was the fundamental start of the United States of America. And the, and the reason that we existed was to have a government. We, we're declaring independence from England. We wanted to have our own government. We didn't, um, we didn't want to be coerced by the king. We didn't want to live under the king's thumb. We wanted to have freedom. And in the Declaration of Independence, we state that all men are created equal and they are endowed by the creator with certain inalienable rights that include the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And the role of government is to secure those freedoms. So what that means is, is that 
government needs to keep the marketplace free. And I don't mean free like no cost. I mean free that we can interact and transact with whom we wish without a third party, the government, coercing the system, rigging the system, setting it up to benefit some people and to disadvantage others. That's what we have now. So a system of, in my opinion, a government at the federal level that exists to protect our, our country, that protects um, our, our from invaders, that protects us in times of war, and then um, uh, a a country that has a rule of law and that when people are found guilty of harming others, murder, rape, assault, theft, fraud, um, breaking contracts, any of those kinds of things. That's the rightful nature of government to have a justice system, to have a police that's going to hold people accountable, a justice system and a courts that are going to render penalties on people that have violated that law and ultimately have violated the rights of other people. Um, That's what government's role should be. But in my opinion, we've got so much more going on with federal government in terms of wealth redistribution, um, regulatory power, the rig systems. We've got a, a um, Department of Defense that is really a world police that is really a department of offense in many cases where just untold amounts of money are being spent that shouldn't be spent. Um, so I think we need to have a very s- serious conversation. I would like to see a separation of the economy and the state. Just like a separation of church and state, um, where the government is not manipulating the economy, government would still play a role. If there was theft, fraud, co- um, if there was um, you know damages, if a company had a product that killed someone, or you know there was some negligence by a company, they would certainly be accountable. Um, but beyond that, government should be strictly limited because when it is. It gives us greater liberty so that we can manage our own lives and ultimately pursue our own happiness. Um, so I'd, I'd love to see an, the conversation about taking certain portions of government and just really asking the question, why? Why do we need this? Is this something that the private um, industry can do better? Is this something that if the government does offer it, can it be something that people can opt in or opt out? You know, we've talked about a public option for health care. Could there be a public option for Social Security? Could there be a public option for a lot of other things? Could there be other government services that you just pay for usage? Kind of like how there's a gas tax where you pay for usage of roads roughly in proportion to your usage. Can there be a similar thing for other things? If you want to use it, you pay for it. If you don't want to use it, you don't pay for it. You know, can we have that conversation? Um, Are there parts of the government that should simply be privatized? Should we give more flexibility to parents to have vouchers for their children to go to different schools? Or should portions of the public education system be privatized? And then people would have a lot more control and flexibility and have greater freedom. And the system wouldn't be, uh, would be less rigged. Um, it would give people more flexibility to pursue their own values. Um, but right now, because of the coercive nature of government, the coercive nature of taxation, we end up getting funneled into certain paths um, and paths that often may run counter to the way we want to live our own life. So I think we really need to have that conversation. What is the role of government? That has to start there. And then once we agree on what that is, and that would be a major debate and we'll have a lot of disagreement. But when a compromise is made and that solution is identified, then you figure out how do you fund it? And can you fund it in ways 
that are more voluntary in nature, more transactional in nature, that don't require people with guns showing up at your house and threatening to put you in prison or fine you more if you don't comply. Um, So enough of my rant. Um, I get to do this on April 15th. Um, you'll hear a little bit of this from time to time on my podcast. Um, you know, I, I think Milton Friedman is, is one of the guys that I love. And he said, I'm in favor of any tax, no matter any tax cut. I'm in favor of any tax cut, no matter how big, how small, who it applies to. I want taxes to come down. And I am in that camp with Milton Friedman, who I think is one of the greatest all time economists in American history. I love that guy. Um, But I do want to thank everybody for listening, for watching. If you made it this far through my tax rant on April 15th, thank you for making it this far. Um, What can you do to help? You can watch every episode. You can listen to every episode. You can um, share this with a friend. You can, hey, tell a person, have you heard about this thing called the John Riley Project? Share this with a friend. Um, If you're listening on iTunes, leave a review. If you like what you're listening, um, you know, leave a five-star review. If you maybe like the enthusiasm, the passion. Maybe you don't agree with me, uh, but you still like the content and you like the civil conversation, then by all means, um, rate me appropriately. Um, and also, if you, if you like to come on here and debate this with me, I'd love to have the conversation. And I think we can have a, an interesting discussion and we can share that with the millions of people that watch us on YouTube and listen on iTunes, Stitcher and Spotify. Um, you can follow us on social media. You can go to the website, johnreillyproject.com. Get on our email list. You can donate. You, If you're a business and you want to be a sponsor, we'd love to have you as well. So I um, just want to sign off. And in the worlds of Arnold Schwarzenegger, Schwarzenegger I will be back. Um, and I do always like to leave with an inspirational quote. And this is from Frederick Bastiat and uh, another great economist. Um, he wrote the book, um, The Road to Serfdom. And he said... And this is appropriate for tax day, or as I call it, um, national taxation is theft day. Um, When plunder becomes a way of life for a group of men in society, over the course of time, they create for themselves a legal system that authorizes it and a moral code that glorifies it. And that is exactly what we have. I hope I've made a case for that here on episode number 45, 45 of the John Riley Project. Thank you very much. And we'll be back again. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.